We have two readings this morning. The first is from the Gospel of Luke. It's the parable of the richer man, and in Luke 12, from verse 16 to 21. And then our text comes from the book of James, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. But we'll start with Luke 12, from verse 16 to 21. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my good and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We turn then to page 1013 in the Pew Bibles, to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him. It is sin. So far the reading. And I've entitled today's sermon, If the Lord Wills. Now every day across the world people make plans. Politicians try to win our hearts with, uh, and our hearts and our votes with their plans for the ward or the city or the state or even the country. CEOs or general managers and their boards meet to discuss a, a variety of plans, strategic plans, financial plans, production plans, takeover plans, and even plans to, um, to avoid tax. In our homes, we, we hopefully plan as well. We plan our budgets so that we can know if we have enough money to get through each month. As dating couples, we plan our weddings. As students, we again hopefully plan our study time so that we can get the most done in the least time so that we can have lots of spare time to go and party. As parents, we help our children plan for their futures as well. We, have, we try to stop them from, from partying too much. So we help them with plans for their future by advising them on career options. And as a church, we make plans too, such as the plan to call a new minister. It's a plan that we are making. Planning is part of life for each one of us. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But our mindset in that process of planning is crucial. That's one of the things that the practical pastor James writes about in this passage, in this part of his letter to, to fellow believers who have been scattered far and wide. Now the book of James or the letter of James is it's chock-a-block with practical advice to Christians for their daily walk. And the verses that we're looking at today are no, are no different in that regard. They tell us about the, the error of planning without taking God into account. 
Verses 13 to 14 tell us about the wrong walk with God, or more accurately, a walk that is really without God. Verses 15 to 17 tell us how we should be walking with God in terms of our planning. Or to put it more concisely, planning without God in verses 13 and 14 and planning with God in verses 15 to 17. So let's look first at verses 13 to 14 of planning without God or what not to do. These verses, um, in these verses we see that they talk about the problem of planning for the future. The verses go as follows. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Come now, James says. Come now. And this is a phrase that only he uses in all of the New Testament. And it's just here and in chapter 5 verse 1 that he, that he uses it to rebuke the rich. This come now is an attention grabber. It's, a, it's an exclamation of distress. But it's also a call to the hearts and minds of the audience, of, his, of the people that will be reading this letter. It's also a reminder of the language of the Old Testament prophets when they spoke on behalf of God. And it's almost like this, this pastor in the Korean church who, when he was getting to an important part of a sermon, he would reach under the pulpit and ring a bell to signal to his congregation to wake up because something important was coming up. Or it's like that military commander that shoots at his ship, wake up you lot. And James is doing the same thing with us, come now. Because he wants his listeners to, to know that what he's about to say is crucial for their Christian walk. He's calling them out. He's scolding them. Essentially he's saying, you arrogant lot. You're so sure of yourself. You're so sure of what the future holds that you say that you will do this and you will do that. But you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Now James may be addressing rich traders here. But his words apply much more widely. It's not just to traders. The general nature of his words come out in phrases like such and such or today and tomorrow. He's talking about all people who make their plans without a reference to God. He's telling them their plans reveal an arrogant attitude towards God and a disregard for the fact that God is sovereign. Such people are counting their chickens before they've hatched. In fact, they're counting the chickens before they've even bought the hens that are supposed to lay the eggs. To put it another way, these rich traders are bestowing blessings upon themselves. In their arrogance, they presume that they'll be around tomorrow to freely go where they want to go and also to achieve success. We will, we will, we will, they say. But this sort of worldview is fundamentally flawed. As James points out for us, we cannot predict what will happen tomorrow. We don't know even if we will be around tomorrow. In the parable we read earlier, the foolish rich man was, was so focused on indulging in, in the abundance of his wealth that his plans, the plans that he made, didn't include God. His plans didn't coincide with those of God. And you remember what God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required to you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? And to this Jesus adds, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way, all flesh 
is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of God blows on it. Surely the people are grass. David, the man after God's own heart, cried out, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Brothers and sisters, these biblical pictures reflect the reality of our lives. We are a frail people. Our lives are short. And although God knows the exact time and place of our end, we don't. We don't. And James wants all his readers to grasp this this brevity of life when he says our lives are like mists that appear and just as swiftly disappear. If you've ever been in a desert environment, you'll know about the morning mist that sometimes appears but just as quickly disappears. Now we may not want to think about our lives in those terms, but that's what our lives are like. They are like mists. The reality of how quickly our lives might end was brought home to me a few years ago when when my daughter and I travelled to Germany. We were coming into land and the the pilot made this left-hand turn to, to approach the runway, but the plane was substantially lower than it should have been. As I looked out of the window, I saw the tips of the plane very close to the ground, maybe as high as this building, if that much. The grass came rushing up. You could see animals scatter. Thankfully, the pilot gunned that, the engines and we started climbing again for a second attempt. Just a few seconds, or maybe even less, and things could have been very different for us. We just don't know what the future brings, or or how long we have left. Another plan, or another example of of plans that politicians spruik when they want to make, when they want to have our votes. Many of those never see the light of day, do they? Perhaps because those who make the plans don't have all the information perhaps because those plans don't align with what God wants. A good example, if you're a Melbourneite, or you know Melbourne, is the rail link between Melbourne and Sydney, the so-called high-speed rail link that has been promised over the past two decades, but it's never been built. Why? There may be some practical reasons, yes, but at the end of the day, those who make the promises don't know what the following day or year or decade will bring. Again, the bottom line is that we are not in control. We do not know what is coming. So does this passage then teach that we, because we can't see the future, we shouldn't plan? Not at all. We can and we must plan. It's part of our responsibility as stewards of what God has given to us. and applies to those who, who run companies, to us as individuals, and also to us as a church. We can't just sit and wait for God to plough our fields or to plant the seeds or to water the furrows. That's all stuff that needs to be planned for and also to be done at the right time. We need to work to support our families, to provide for our families. And for that we need to plan. But when we as Christians do our planning, we must remember that not everything revolves around us. It's not about us. It would be arrogant to, con- uh, to assume that we are in control. When we consider to plan uh, what we ought to do, we plan everything, yes, everything and anything. We should take into account that God is in control. 
Our eyes should be on the Lord. Our lips should be occupied in praying for God's leading. Our, our ears should be open to what God is teaching us in his word. So how do we do that? This is what James turns to in verses 15 to 17. Planning with God or walking with God in submission. So he confronts this, these traders with their foolishness without taking God's will into, into consideration or planning without taking God's will into consideration. And then in these verses he goes on to show what the right attitude in this regard should look like. The right attitude says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. The right attitude has to do with taking into account what God's revealed will tells us. The right attitude has to do with seeking God's will in all of our planning, all of our planning. And this aligns perfectly with what Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. We're to ask for the Lord's will to be done, for the Lord's will to be done in our lives. And this is exactly what Jesus prayed for on, on the Mount of Olives, wasn't it? When he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. People of God, seeking and doing the will of God is crucial. It's crucial. For as our Saviour said, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what it's about. This is what it's about. Seeking and doing the will of God. And that applies to our planning too. That's what James is on about here. Our Christian walk must be, must be one of seeking to do God's will in all that we do. And please, please don't make the mistake of thinking that this is simply about piously ending each sentence with if the Lord wills or Lord willing, or if you want to sound fancy or scholarly, Deo volente. That's how some people use it, almost like a magic charm, like an abracadabra or a Harry Potter's expecto patronum. That's not what this is supposed to be about. It's about so much more than, than adding these two little words DV after a sentence. James isn't sharing with us a, a formula that we have to tack onto our sentences. It's about what's in our heart. If the Lord wills must be like a mirror for what is in our hearts, a mirror for what our thinking is like, a mirror for whom we look to in our plans. Now James is undeniably a practical pastor. He wants his readers to know what Christian living should look like in practice. Earlier in chapter 4, he made it clear that submission to God is the foundation of Christian living, of all Christian living. And in verses 13 to 17, he describes what that submission looks like in real life. If we have come before God in humility and have submitted to him through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we will recognize that our our lives depend on His grace. If we have submitted to Him, and if we want to live in submission to Him, we will gladly proclaim His sovereignty over the, the whole scope of our lives. And we will want to seek, we will want to seek to do His will to the best of our ability, searching for it in prayer, searching for it in His revealed will. And in the case of planning, this means that, that as we plan, it means praying, praying as we plan. It means seeking God's will as we plan. It also means submitting to the wisdom of God 
Should our plans not work out the way that we want them to work out? So God willing isn't about saying the right words, but having those words come from a a deep and um, abiding love for God with hearts and minds that focus on him. God willing is that, that solemn recognition that our future rests solely in the Lord's gracious providence. God willing is an attitude. It's an attitude of the heart that's been submitted to God. It's the attitude of a heart that yearns for God, that burns for God. In other words, the attitude of God willing has to come from a deep and passionate and personal relationship with Jesus. Think about it this way. If you've accepted Jesus as your saviour, you've entrusted your eternal life to him, haven't you? So why on earth wouldn't you entrust your daily life to him too? If Jesus is your saviour, you know that he rules over the present and the future. So trust him and give him priority in your plans. In our everyday lives, God willing means constantly asking ourselves if we really and sincerely desire to bring every part of our lives under the Lord's kingship or under the king's lordship, whichever way you want to look at it. It means checking if our plans are God-honoring and not self-seeking. It means asking if the way that we want to achieve our plans brings glory to God. It means coming to God in prayer before and while making our plans. And not just on the big decisions such as getting married or which job to take, but on the smaller things in life as well, such as which movie we're going to watch or not watch. It also means asking ourselves if we'd be satisfied if God's plan for us ended up being different from ours. Would we joyously submit to his will if our plans didn't work out the way we wanted them to work out? Now, brothers and sisters, sometimes we may hesitate to bring things to God in prayer. Perhaps because we're worried that his plans might not align with ours, or perhaps we think we, we shouldn't really bother God with this. It's not that important. So we try to take matters into our own hands to try and make sure that our plans work out. I'm reminded of a young woman whom God had blessed with, with loving parents, great musical talent and also a very good job. But she desperately wanted to get married because she wanted kids. Despite God's abundant provision in all other aspects of her life, she wasn't willing to leave that into God's hands. Instead, she took off a year, in her own words, to find a husband. She took a year off work to find a husband. In essence, she echoed that arrogance of the traders saying, I will, I will, I will, I will take a year off. I will find a guy and I will marry him. She wasn't willing to submit to God's will by patiently waiting on him. Living in submission to God also means being open to altering our plans. Yes, even our prayerful plans when God brings something else on our way. Over the past year or so, We've prayed that the Lord would provide sufficient healing that will, would allow me to continue serving, serving you, serving God's people here in Tivoli. But in his wisdom, he has led us on a different course. He's led us to a different outcome. 
Our calling committee and our session have prayerfully discussed who to put forward to the congregation and we voted unanimously on that call. But God had other plans for us. We'll be voting again shortly on calling someone and we'll be doing that prayerfully. And the Lord may answer our desire, but he may lead us in a different direction. That doesn't mean that in all these things our prayers have gone unanswered, but rather that God has a far superior plan in place for all of us. And that's where submission comes in. As someone once said to me, the big boss knows best. And the big boss does know best. There's no doubt that he knows what's best. He knows what's best for us as a church. He knows what's best for us as his chosen people. And if we know that, if we know that the big boss knows best, how arrogant would we be to not seek his will in all that we do? How arrogant would it be to not put our trust in him and submit to him? And take him into account in all our plans. To leave everything in his hands. To place everything into his hands. And to accept and to wait on him. It's this type of arrogance that James warns us about in verse 16. The business people's arrogance is the reason they didn't take God into account in their plans. Rather than believing that their plans will be realized Only if God permits, they take pride in their own planning as if God doesn't exist. This boastful arrogance indicates the true condition of their hearts. It shows they're more concerned with their own wealth, their own plans, than with humility before God. In other words, as James says elsewhere, they are friends of the world rather than friends of God. But arrogance or pride isn't only an attitude that deliberately ignores God, it's also a failure to do what we know is right. That's why James can say in verse 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He has shown them how wrong it is to leave God out of their plans. Then he's shown them that the right thing to do is to include God in all their plans. Now he uses what seems to be a proverb to say to them and also to us today, you know that failing to stand in submission and humility before God is sin. People of God, we know what the word says. We know what God's word says about the future. and We know what it says about the providence of God and also what it doesn't. The right thing to do, James says, is to submit to God in humility. And that means submitting to him in our plans as well. To do otherwise would be be not only arrogant, it would be sinful. To do otherwise would would mean that we would be friends of the world, not friends of God. Now perhaps you may be thinking that there's no way that you can do the right thing, not all the time, not even most of the time. And you'd be right in thinking that, but that's the absolute joy of the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what James says in verse 10. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. In Jesus, those who humble themselves will be lifted up. The path of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the path of humility. That means submitting to God in everything. It means seeking his will in all aspects of our lives, all our plans. It means trusting in his gracious provision. 
also means keep on turning to him for the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness that we need, and the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. Every time we fall short of of his will for our lives. In Christ we are strong. We are weak, but in Christ we are strong. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus, may our hearts burn with the desire to do God's will and for his will to be done in our lives. We know that he's, that he's laid out a, a path for us to walk. Trust in him. Trust in him and walk that path. Look with uplifted and rejoicing hearts to your risen Saviour Jesus Christ and trust in him. Place him first. Place him first in, in all your planning and trust in him. Trust in him and submit to him. For the big boss certainly knows what's best. Let's pray. Heavenly, gracious Father, we thank you for your amazing provision in our lives. Thank you for making us part of your household, for for adopting us as your children. Lord, we pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, our hearts will burn with a desire to do your will, to love you, to trust you, to submit to you in all that we do and say, all that we think, in all our plans. Fill our hearts, O Lord, with the knowledge of your will, so that we may grow in wisdom, it will stand firm in our faith. And Lord, let your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.